Millennials are achieving freedom with new definitions of success. Our careers, relationships, education, family, even our politics look nothing like our parents. We're adopting what works and throwing out the rest. We are tired, but not worn, in our quest to get there. We Should Be Sleeping explores the things worth losing sleep over. Each week, we discuss the news and topics that keep us awake. Then, our guests share the intentional ways they've done it differently to achieve a new brand of success that's authentic, unconventional, and definitive of our generation. Not ready for bed? Neither are we. I'm Douglas Bonaparte. I'm Heather Bonaparte. Welcome to We Should Be Sleeping. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the first official season of We Should Be Sleeping. We are so excited to have you join us. I am Douglas Bonaparte, a millennial finance expert and the founder of Bonafide Wealth in New York City. And I'm Heather Bonaparte, and I have no idea what I'm doing here in this basement recording studio. You stop that. You stop that. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm in-house counsel for a Fortune 500 company, and together with Douglas, the co-author of The Millennial Money Fix, a book that we wrote about finding financial freedom despite having six figures in student loan debt. We wrote our book while I was actually on maternity leave with our first daughter, proving that our hustle truly never rests, even when we should be, which is how we should be sleeping came to be. True story. We had a great time recording our mini episodes last summer, but here's how season one is going to work. At the top of the show, you're going to hear from Heather and I about current events in the world, our lives, or just whatever's you know keeping us up at night. Then we're going to share a discussion with an amazing guest. And let me just say, do we have the lineup of guests for you? Oh, we do. One thing to know is that all our guests are themselves millennials who are finding success by doing things differently. Each one has a unique story to tell and valuable lessons to share with you. We want you to be as inspired as you are motivated after hearing from them. So let's not delay and get on with the show. Let's get on with it. Let's do this. The other day, I handed Heather her iPhone when I happened to take a look at her home screen. To my absolute terror, I noticed that her unread email notification badge was a shape and number I had never seen in my life before. The long red oval displayed that you had over 6,000 unread emails. Guilty. Yeah. It got me thinking, did I marry a sociopath? Oh. How is, Heather, how is this even possible? Unlike me, you're one of the most like organized people I know. But when it comes to your inbox, you're basically a hoarder. Look, I'm going to defend myself a bit here, okay? I hope so. I am very busy. True. (laughs) I mean, unlike you, here's the thing. You know, Doug's work and professional and personal lives kind of live in this like, as, as I said before, like a little bit of like a jello mold, like it's one big mold. This is his life and like, you know, work is pleasure and pleasure is work. For me, it's really not like that. I mean, I have a separate work computer. I've got separate work phones. I can't even access Gmail on my work computer. Like this is not, so for me, like I don't have opportunities throughout my entire day you know, seven days a week to be like, oh, I'm sorry, I got my 45th West Elm email of the day. Let me just make sure that there's not a coupon in here that I need. Yeah. Or or, or like, let me unsubscribe from my child's highlights emails that I get four times a week. Like, honestly, yeah. Am I happy about the current state of affairs? I'm not. But I am by no means a sociopath. I am just like a busy person trying to get by. And I think like, I, I don't know. I kind of think that there are people like you who have like no 
unread messages and like maybe you're the sociopath maybe you're like what patrick bateman like i mean do, do you have nothing in your refrigerator you no, know what I, I mean i just stay on top of it like you know right because you can because you've got the time I, I, you know i don't know if i buy this excuse that okay so your technology life is divided between two devices personal and business okay so it's one more step one more thing but your phone's still in your hand your personal phone it's still there is it really that hard to scroll to the bottom of that west elm email and hit unsubscribe so you don't get the fi- 500th one for the you know time in the month i don't know how many promotional emails you get a day, but I have a feeling that I get a lot more than you. And if you're wondering, okay. and if you're wondering whether I've tried to unsubscribe, I feel like I keep unsubscribing and they just keep coming back. But aren't you like motivated to maybe buy like some kind of filter application or like what? take action I don't know. I, here? I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what that is. That's not something I really want to understand. I, I don't want what, like if, okay, if I would never pay somebody to organize my house, why would I pay for an app to organize my emails? Like, honestly, who said it's paid? Who if said I it's a miss paid something, app? If I miss something, like, that's on me. And look, I, and here's what I'm going to say on this. And, and I've said this to you a couple times as we've been like bickering about this over the past couple weeks. Like, I'm not happy about it. I'm not like saying, like, yeah, you know what I like? I like keeping 10,000 emails just to kind of see like I live, How big can the number I'm living, get? A, I'm living a little dangerously like maybe I missed something important maybe I didn't you know like that's not what I'm you know aiming it's all crap. for that's not what I'm aiming for like I would love to not be in this in this state of disarray because like you said like I'm a very organized person I schedule and I plan everything I am methodical right. AF right all so this right. is like killing me but like what am I supposed to do you know like Am I supposed to like not go for a five mile run so that I can like check my promotional emails instead? Like, no, like you prioritize. You know what I mean? All right. Well, I apologize for calling you a sociopath on Twitter. I did. Thank you. I I appreciate that. I did like your clapback. It was good. I, I, you know, I don't like when we do like this Twitter redux though, because this is not like ESPN of FinTwit here. Like that's not what I'm going for on this podcast. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Moving on. So in the spirit of what this podcast is truly about, you know, things that we're up to instead of sleeping and, I'm not embarrassed to share. I mean, it's a little bit TMI, but like, you know, nothing too salacious. We've been kind of having some like basement dance parties over the last couple of weeks. Here's how this all came about. And I'm not ashamed, right? Um, Our daughter, who's now just turned five, actually, we're kind of in this routine. Somebody takes her to school every morning and and the drive to school is about five minutes long. It's usually me. Yeah, usually Doug. Usually I'm home doing breakfast with our little one. And Hazel is like really into music, but she needs to have like a certain soundtrack for her ride to school. And it's become this thing where it's like she's got these like hype songs. You know what I mean? Like she has. She's getting hyped up for her day. Yeah, she's like pumping it up, right? It's like it's like you're you're like an athlete getting ready for the big game. That's like our daughter pulling up to pre-K, right? She's got her list of songs and we all like she has to listen to it. Like she needs to be listening to it as she's pulling in the parking lot. Like today is going to be the day. Today is my day. So I started thinking about this. By the way, I'm always like a little embarrassed when we pull up to like the uh, temperature check and like questionnaire lady. I guess it's the school nurse. Yeah. I'm always like turning the volume down because I don't want her judging like what what we're blasting here in the car because no, it's kids music you know it's, anyways it's like a little wild too like first thing in the morning it's yeah. like it's like we're pulling up right it's like it's like the bus pulling up to the gator game like yeah. the Florida Georgia game is happening in our car um, anyway okay. but yeah so like I started thinking don't we all have hype songs like whether you're willing to admit it or not like you have songs that you turn to for various um 
uh, circumstances in your life that you feel like, you know, you just, you need like the pump up, right? And like, I've got some, so I've started thinking about it. And I'm like not ashamed and they really run the gamut. So like one of them, and this is back from law school. I used to listen to this on the subway on my way to job interviews. And they were a lot because it was the Great Recession and like nobody was getting employed. Um, on to the next one, Jay-Z. Yeah, that's actually a particularly good one. And I, I actually remember you listening to that quite a bit. I was like air, like, like air punching the sky, <laughs> like walking down the street listening to the song. Well, for me, like it's either hip hop or electronic music. So I'm going to stick with the hip-hop here it's bombed over baghdad by outcast oh okay all right yeah it's a fast-paced really get you going kind of song great great song and you're kind of like a kanye guy too well old school kanye yeah like sophomore maybe third fourth album kanye it actually pains me to admit that like kanye and we had like an a mini episode prior to this like not really thrilled with kanye west but yeah all of the lights by kanye west i i could totally see that if, I'm if here for you that. can't get excited to that song, regardless of how you feel about Kanye, something's wrong with you. So speaking of that era, and I, I, I was debating whether to even, this was like an asterisk, do I even go with this? But I have to share it. Anyone who knew me in college, and, and I know that there's a couple listeners who definitely knew me in college. Oh boy. Diddy's press play album, the entire album from 2006. That was me. The late put, Diddy album. Yeah, so what? Okay. Putting on my like, Mac makeup, getting ready to go out to like the sorority date function or like go to the swamp, you know, like Mm -hmm. I had to have my like aggressive. You were dating me. What were you getting aggressive about? (laughs) It doesn't matter. That was the hype up. That's like what it was. You know what I mean? Like that was to to party. I don't know. What else? Okay. Edge of Glory, Lady Gaga. Yeah. You're a big Lady Gaga fan? Yeah. Big big vocals. I am a big Lady Gaga fan, but also like that song, the first time I heard that song, I was like, this is it. Yeah. This is a banger, right? Like, this is it. I'm going to go with this, like, nonstop for a month. And I did. And every time I heard it, I was like, you are on the edge of glory. I don't know what you're looking for, but you're about to get it. Oh, she has she has songs. You got to respect her. Oh, really? I have respect. Yeah, you should. All right. I got another. Okay. So I did two hip hop. I'm going to go with my electronic music here. Eric Prids, Every Day. Okay. And, and you know, I was, th- this is a song that just like helps me literally get through, you know, any stinker of a day. You put this on and you're like, I can, I can get by this. I can do this. And I had the privilege of going to Roseland Ballroom on like Thanksgiving one year. And I got to see Eric Prids live, huge, huge act if you're into electronic music. And he literally opened the entire show with this song and it will forever be one of the biggest hype songs for me cool it was awesome okay i have one more one more and i was this was definitely one of the first songs that came to mind when i was thinking about this my hero foo fighters yeah right classic does that not make you feel like you're like i'm about to play in the friday night football game for my, for my high school. Wait, you think you you think you're yeah, the hero I'm, I'm versus the hero. like admiring the hero? Yeah, I'm the hero. Some narcissistic take on that I'm song. I'm the hero. I'm about to run out on the field. There goes Heather, the hero. Yeah, that's me. I'm the hero. My God. Okay. I love that song, and I still listen it's to it song. all the time. Hey, I'm not gonna love the Foo Fighters. Good song. Foo and Fighters love are great. like '90s rock, as you know. I'm yeah. super into it. 
anyway, what we would love to know from our listeners are some of your hype songs. And if we get some really good ones and we get enough of them, I would love to create like a Spotify playlist of them and share the link with you all in the show notes for episode two. So do me a favor, head on over to WeShouldBeSleeping.com and fill out the contact form on the main page. Include as many as you'd like. I am dying to know what yeah. some of your hype songs are. I we'll, really we'll am. cherry pick them, put a playlist together, and you know we'll all get hyped up together. So I'm I'm honestly excited for that. I hope it happens, and you know I'm excited for that, but not as excited as I am to bring on our first guest. Good segue. Morgan Housel is a partner at the Collaborative Fund and a former columnist at the Motley Fool and the Wall Street Journal. He is a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers, winner of the New York Times Sydney Award, and two-time finalist for the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. He is also the author of his new book, Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness, which is already a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. So. What I love about Morgan is how he considers himself a blogger when, in fact, you're a very talented writer who has a blog. Personally, I think you saying you're a blogger is one of those like super millennial cliche things where you're a lover of avocado toast or something like that. But you say it almost as if it's a badge of honor. So why do you call yourself a blogger and not a writer? Funny you bring that up. Because I feel like early on in my career, it was the opposite. If people called me a blogger, I was offended. And so I would say, no, I'm a writer. But I feel like blogger has kind of taken on a new cachet, I think, in the last five or 10 years. It used to be 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a blogger was, oh, you're kind of a journalist who can't really hack it. But I think blogging has kind of taken over in terms of financial content and media over the last five or 10 years. And a lot of the best content today that exists on the entire web is free blogs. And look, there's always going to be a spot for, paid journalists at the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Bloomberg, et cetera, that are doing their thing, which is really good and quality fact-checking and reporting. But a lot of the best analysis, the best information, the best advice that you can get in finance and other fields are on free blogs these days. So I feel like it's just gained a little bit of cachet over the last couple of years. And maybe I've just gotten to terms with accepting that this is what I do. I guess it's different now that you've written a book. Maybe then you can call yourself an author, but most of what I do is still blogging. Fair enough. I find the, when you write a book and like you have to come to grips with the fact that you're an author, like how really weird and awkward it is to be like, yeah, that's a title I have to accept now. And the book thing is interesting too, because look, there's this thing I've always found weird online where if you write a blog post, people will consider that one thing. But then if you convert it to PDF and you tell people it's a white paper, they think it's different. They're like, oh, this is a white paper. This is different, but it's the same exact thing. And then if you take that PDF and you put it in between two pieces of cardboard and it's a book, then they're like, oh, I will pay for that. Take my money. That's the exact same stuff. The white paper thing must be a very like finance driven thing. I mean, because that's in your world. You're in the legal world. You guys got briefs. You right. don't have white papers. We publish papers. briefs and decisions get made based off our briefs. I mean, it's a very different road to publication. So like the idea of the white paper ideas. is foreign to me. Until <laughs> white, paper, white papers are for ideas. <laughs> if you're a consultant, then it's a research report sure. or it's a white paper or a brief. It's all just people justifying their salaries is what they're doing. 100%. Well, there you go. It's about the dollars behind it. And I think what's funny here is that the blogging thing, when I see people 
especially in finance, sell their blogs to larger financial media sites. <laughs> it's big bucks. So yeah, here we are yeah, talking about are free. Big money. Yeah. I mean, there are blogs out there that get millions of page views per month and they are viable entities. And rather than a newsroom that needs to be staffed with dozens or hundreds of people, these are one person with a MacBook somewhere writing their blog. Like it's such a scalable and low barrier to entry industry. But when it works, it really works. And you can actually make a viable business out of it. And here I am running a wealth management firm and not a blog. Well, I'm the each their own. I had a food blog very briefly, more than a couple of years ago. That was what, a decade ago already? Oh Better than anything I ever did. It was nuts. Okay. So Morgan, <laughs> we get it. It's a sly wink, but despite all the accolades for your writing, something I find admirable about your past, and this is personal, is that you conquered a childhood stutter which has also been a topic of conversation during the election cycle due to Joe Biden conquering the same affliction. So was there a particular moment as a child you said, I need to find a way through this? No, there was no particular moment. And so I'm 36 years old right now. And it was not until I was probably about 30. So like well into my adult life that I feel like I had overcome it. And it's not 100%. You'll probably notice on several times during this podcast where you will notice it if you're looking for it. So it's not that I've overcome it 100%, but it was just kind of a slow grind. And for stuttering, I have, there's kind of two parts to getting over it. One was being able to anticipate what sounds and words are going to trip me up. And the second part was being able to come up with a different set of words on the fly to avoid that sound. So I just needed to forecast what sound was going to be a problem and then come up with a new sentence as I'm speaking. Wow. And probably by the time I was about age like 13 or 14, I had the forecasting part down. I could tell a half a second before I was going to say a word that I wasn't going to be able to say it. I was going to stutter as I said it. But like a seven-year-old can't like do that? No. So that's why the most severe stuttering by and large is with younger kids because I feel like they're just kind of powering through it. Like one simple analogy here would be like with rattlesnakes, the most dangerous rattlesnakes are the babies because they have no control over their venom. If they bite you, they're just going to give you everything they have. Whereas the adults are like, oh, I should save some for later. I'm just going to give you a little bit of venom here. And I feel like with kids with stuttering, since I think by and large, they can't anticipate what's going to be a problem. They just kind of run straight into their problem sounds. Whereas adults, I think, have a better sense of like, oh, even as I'm saying a sentence, I can tell this next word that I'm about to say, I'm not going to be able to say it. So they might just stop or they might come up with a different word, which is what I do now, or they might just not say that sentence at all. They just kind of keep their mouth shut and become kind of quiet people that don't talk very much. What a tool, Like what a tool to have to teach yourself. I mean, there's- Does that tool adapt into- other forms other than controlling speech and what you're going to say. Right. I mean, like in another way, just in the sense of the adversity you have to overcome to kind of like do that and teach yourself that and deal with that on a daily basis. I mean, like, how does that translate? I do think it has made me a better writer because the skill that I learned that again, I don't think I had mastered until I was 30. So this is like, it took me a lifetime to get this, but the skill that I've mastered is that I can reword any sentence 10 different ways in half a second because that's how you overcome stuttering. And I think that skill has probably made me a better writer in terms of like, give me any sentence, I can tear it apart and say it in 10 different ways instantly. And then pick the best one. I think that has been a good skill for me in many ways with writing. And you wouldn't think, look, I honestly think a lot of the reason that writing was appealing to me is because when I became a writer, when I was, I don't know, 24, 25, I still had a very severe stutter. It was still debilitating for me. So the idea that I could sit at home by myself and just write, 
I don't have to be taking part in meetings. I don't have to pitch people. I could just sit at home and write was really appealing to me as a stutterer. That was at least part of the reason why I wanted to become a writer. But I think the ability to overcome it and the ability to rearrange words on the fly has made me a better writer as well. So speaking of becoming a great writer, you finally wrote your book. And I would like to understand, because from what I've heard, the demand for Morgan Howe's a book in the financial community, to which I am adjacent, so I hear these things, was reaching critical levels. So when did you want to write a book and when did you actually start writing it? I feel like I'm fairly proud of the fact that I didn't rush it. Like I've been a full-time writer for 13 years now. And I'm glad that I didn't at year five say, oh, I'm overdue. I have to do this. I really wanted to wait until it was like, okay, I know I have enough good material to get this done. So I didn't feel that much pressure to get it done until June of 2018. I wrote a long blog post. There's 10,000 words. It was a very long blog post called The Psychology of Money. And the purpose of that blog post was I just wanted to summarize everything that I've learned. I wanted to summarize the most important parts of behavioral finance that I had learned in the past decade before that. So I just wanted to summarize these 19 or 20 points and explain them in a few hundred words each. And that post did really well. It caught on. People liked it. I think the structure of it was appealing to people of just, hey, here's a bunch of different points. I'm going to try to explain them as quickly as I can and then get out of your way and move on to the next point. So after that post kind of caught on is when I realized, hey, this was already 10,000 words and there's so much more that I could say. Like Even though it was 10,000 words, I was holding myself back just to keep it shorter so well, right, that and 10,000 words clicked. is like a solid fraction of a book. I mean, what, a third of a book or a quarter of a book just right there? The final book was 55,000 words. Oh, okay. So the blog post that <laughs> sparked this, Long book. it was already one-fifth of a book. Right. right. But that was the first indication that was like, no, I do have enough material here and I feel confident to get this done. But even the actual writing. So the deal I had with the publisher, they gave me 12 months to write the book. And at the end of nine months, I had written two really bad chapters. <laughs> one of which didn't even make it into the book in the end. And I had this come to Jesus moment with my wife. We were driving one day and she, in like, not a teasing way, in like a legitimately disappointed way was like, what's going on with your book? Are you still writing? Like, what are you even doing there right now? And it was exactly the pressure that I needed to like get in gear. Cause I think a lot of this was since the publisher gave me a year to write it, it was so easy to procrastinate. Yeah, Sure. So after that conversation with my wife, I wiped my calendar clean and I wrote 90% of the book over about a four-week period last December. Where do you write? Whereas I was writing in my basement to get some quiet space away from my children. And it was like for that month, it was like six in the morning to six at night. I did nothing else but write the book, which is not advisable. That's not a good way to write a book to try to just crank it out at the last minute, but that's how it worked. I feel like I'm so the path of least resistance for me is always to procrastinate. Like if I have any opportunity to procrastinate, I'm going to do it. I feel like I had to write it at the last moment and just crank it out and not do anything else rather than try to chip away at it for months. Was there ever a moment of genuine concern like, oh shit, yeah, I might screw this up. Or it was just like, I'm a procrastinator. This is what I do every time. I'm going to get to the end of the line here and knock this thing out. There's two parts of this. One, and I'm only fine talking about this now because the book is selling and doing well, but at First, every single publisher turned it down, every single one without fail. And even that is being generous because the majority of publishers didn't even return our emails. Really? Like, there was just so absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. It's so disappointing, even though they say that that's like so normal, but also very disappointing. That, that's actually, that. <laughs> believe it or not, Morgan, that's actually a little, Yeah, having gone through the getting a book deal process, I'm a little shocked by that. I feel like 
for a lot of people, if you're writing a book as like a side project, maybe that's the thing, but it hurt for me because there was some ego in this, but I was like, I'm a professional writer. This is what I, I have do. a following. And I was sure. like, this is not a little game that I'm playing. This is what I do. And you're saying I'm not worthy to respond to my emails. Shit. So there was a little bit like that, that stung a little bit, but I feel like I still had enough confidence of like, of just dealing with that denial of saying, well, they don't know. I'm still going to go do it, which is, that's probably like the worst mindset that you can have when a bunch of professionals are telling you something else. And you're like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not a good, but that was the mentality I had for better or worse, but that definitely stung. And I definitely had moments of like, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe I think this is going to be a great book, but people who know what they're talking about say that it won't. So maybe I should take them seriously, but I still plowed ahead with it. There were moments when I was writing it when I Mia mean, said, yeah, at the end of nine months, I had two bad chapters written. There were definitely times during that period where I would look at those two bad chapters and be like, ugh, this is not going great. I don't know really what we're doing here. But I think during the four weeks when I just plowed ahead and did nothing but the book, I was feeling pretty good about it. And when it was all said and done, when I looked at the 19 chapters, when I was finished, I felt like this is the best work that I can give. So if the book doesn't do well, like I really gave it my all and this is the best work that I can do. Sure. So there were definitely obstacles, it seems. What do you think was the biggest obstacle throughout the entire experience from both pitching it to writing it and selling it? And what was your biggest obstacle throughout the whole process? Even after writing it, you can include in there. So I think the luxury of a book versus a blog is that in a book, you can kind of stretch your legs out and go long. And in a blog, it's kind of like, okay, this needs to be short and snappy because people don't have a lot of time. But in a book, you're like, no, this is going to be 250 pages. I can just tell a long story. Right. So there's always that in your head where you're like, oh, I'm supposed to go deeper here. I'm supposed to tell a deeper story and add more information. But that can get really dangerous. And most people who read a lot of books don't finish those books. And the reason is because most books are just a lot of excessive rambling. It's just a lot of information that doesn't need to be there. And the reason that's there is because people are like, oh, I'm writing a book. So let's give a 50-page introduction that could have been four paragraphs. I was always fighting with that balance of like, oh, I'm writing a book now so I get to tell a long story. But then I had to catch myself and be like, no, 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 no one wants rambling. Just make your point and get out of people's way. Finding that balance was difficult. And in the end, I kind of, relative to the first outline that I had drawn for the book, the first outline was going to be 10 longish chapters and I ended up making it about 20 short chapters. And that I think was the right decision to make because I'm pretty happy with the length of the chapters, which are pretty short. I mean, most of the chapters are four or five pages and you can just get through them quickly. Yeah, that makes it very digestible. I'm a reader that appreciates short stories and short pieces and that's appealing to me as a reader. And this to both of you, do you think that's like a function of the era we're in where like you're going to watch a three minute YouTube video, you're never going to watch a 25 minute YouTube video? I don't know. I mean, some people do don't mind like, long form. I just, I don't know. I like, think are it we depends now, the type of reader that you are. I don't know. So you think like it's still consistent across time or do you think we're now like a short form society? I feel like it's probably always been that writing that gets to the point has always been the most appealing. That's like Ernest Hemingway, just like short sentences. Right. But it's definitely accentuated now. And a lot of it now is like, look, if this was 1940 and you're holding a book, that's probably the only piece of media that you had in front of you. But now Very true. if you're reading a book and you lose interest, well, you got your phone right next to you. You got your laptop right next to you. There's so much more fighting for your attention that people's attention spans and their willingness to put up with ramble is much lower than it used to be. There's competition in- Yeah, way more competition. Yeah, in all kinds of forms. I mean, I noticed that for myself. Like if I'm sitting down to write a book, I think I have to put my phone in another room. Otherwise, every three paragraphs, I'll check Twitter. 
And it's just hard to like actually focus on one thing because there's so much attention for my eyeballs. Well, that's what Doug does all day long with anything that he's doing. I'll own that. It's hard. He'll check Twitter every four seconds if the phone is not in another room. Right. I don't have alerts set up for when Morgan tweets. What are you talking about? (laughs) I finally started about the last month. (laughs) It's fine. I finally started in the last month when I sleep at night. I put my phone in a separate room because I have to do it. Otherwise, I'll wake up at two in the morning, my eyes open, and I'll instantly just grab it. Yeah, you can't do that. I did that for a couple weeks, and I immediately recognized that that was going to be the end of me. Yeah, I sleep better with my phone in another room. It's kind of sad, but it's the truth. No, it's real. We'll get on to, we can talk about that another time. Let's keep going with the book here. One of my favorite chapters in your book talks about having enough. In it, you show how some of the wealthiest people of their time succumb to their own greed when by all measures, they had more than they would ever need. First of all, did I capture that correctly? Yeah. People that have more money than they can ever possibly spend who their desire for more was so great that they reached for more and took such great risks that they ended up in jail. Icarus, right? It makes no sense at all. There's this great quote from Warren Buffett that I love where he says, if you risk something that you need in order to gain something that you don't need, that is foolish. Like that's the definition of foolish, which I love because I feel like there's a lot of that with people in this industry. Like people in the finance industry tend to make absurd amounts of money at some levels and they still take huge risks that they don't need to take in order to get more. And you would think maybe philosophically that once you hit some level of net worth, you should put all of your income into municipal bonds and just ride off into the sunset. Yeah. Like you've made it, like you hit your number, you're done. But Go who chill. does that? No one does that. No one does that. And I don't think I will ever do that either. I'm not criticizing that. But like the idea of having enough money is a really difficult concept for a lot of people to get around. But I think you need to. Like if you don't, if your income, if your expectations and your desires grow at the same rate of your income, the same rate of your wealth, you're yeah. never going to feel like you're going anywhere. That, of course, is known. But I think at the whole societal level, we have this. The median inflation-adjusted income today is double what it was in the 1950s. The average family adjusted for inflation is twice as wealthy today as they were in the 50s. But we think of the 1950s as this nostalgic golden era of middle-age prosperity, even though we're twice as rich today. And I think the reason a lot of that is that we look back at that period as a better time, even though we're wealthy today, is because our expectations have grown more than double during this period that our incomes have doubled. And you can quantify some of this. Like The median new home in the United States in the 1950s was 900 square feet, yeah. which today it's about 2,400 square feet. So there's an example of like your expectations and your aspirations have more than doubled during a period that your income roughly doubled. So as long as that's the case, if your aspirations are growing faster than your income, you're going to feel like you're falling behind. And that's true at every income level. And the only way to combat that, the only antidote to that is to have some level of enough, like to let your income and your wealth grow faster than your expectations and your aspirations. But it's a really difficult thing to do. So you robbed me of my example with the (laughs) homes. And I distinctly remember when we were Shopping Doug for was homes. dying to cut in there. He really was. was really, really <laughs> grilling Heather. And then sure enough, you just took the home example away from me. Not nice. But I remember, and we live in we live in a town where they're hundred plus year old homes. And that's just the Northeast for you. And I remember being told by one of the agents showing us homes was like, oh yeah, 
this was a home that was built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever it may be. And they were explaining that's why the master bedroom is so small or that's why the bathroom is so small because they just didn't think that way like they do today. And it was in really the 80s and 90s and forward where like your master bedroom needed to be big and you needed that. Is this like grand opulent? Yeah. Yeah. That became the norm. And to your point and this example here, there it was in visual context as you were just looking at homes to move your family out of the city because you're having kids and you're like, interesting, interesting. And you so eloquently used it as an example here in having enough and really how despite double the amount of wealth, we've grown into that through things like homes and internet subscriptions. Or- so Doug, so speaking of growing into that, let's hone in on the millennials even more. As we accumulate wealth and success, are we falling into that same trap, just generationally speaking, of more, more, more? Well, I think so. I'm curious as to what Morgan has to say. Like, Morgan, is this just history is going to repeat itself and we got social media fueling this now or we're going to learn our lesson? What do they call it? Like flex culture or something? I mean, that's like a name, right? You definitely hit it on the head with social media because it's always been the case that people judge their well-being relative to the people around them. But if you go back to the 1950s, the people around you were your immediate neighbors and your coworkers. That's who you saw and who you were looking up to and making sure that you were keeping up with the Joneses. The Joneses were literally your next door neighbors. But now with Instagram, everyone across the world logs onto Instagram and they see pictures of people on their private jets going to the Maldives where their Lamborghini awaits them when they land. And now like people's, their zone of influence around them is so greatly expanded now to the most ridiculous highest levels of wealth and aspiration that people's expectations of what counts as a good life and an acceptable life is I think way greater today than it was in the past. This is kind of like one of the big, like the social economic impact of wealth inequality is that when you have a tiny sliver of the economy that is legitimately wealthy, they kind of inflate the expectations of everyone else below them. So if a tiny percent of people can afford to send their kids to private school and buy a 6,000 square foot house and go on great vacations, and they're showing everyone else in the economy that they're doing that on social media and just they're setting the expectation for everyone else, then all those other people kind of race to keep up. And I think that's been a lot of the big rise in household debt over the last 40 years is you have most of the economy that's trying to close the gap between themselves and a tiny sliver of legitimately wealthy people. And the only way that they can close that gap is with debt, a bigger mortgage or student loans, et cetera. So personal question, how much is enough for you? And I guess even more broadly, how do you personally define enough? I think my wife and I have done a pretty good job at keeping the goalpost from moving. We have a bigger house because we have a bigger family, but honestly, our lifestyle is not dramatically different today than it was in our first few years when we finished college. It's not that, we've done a pretty good job there. I think sometimes we question whether our goalpost has stayed too static. Are we missing something? Like we have a pretty high savings rate, but are we missing something? If we spent more, would we be happier? We have that conversation quite a bit. We usually end up at no, but even though I wrote this chapter in the book and I use extreme examples of people who their ability to not have enough that just led them into prison, that's obviously not us, but I do think that it's going to be a problem for us too. It's going to be something that we always have to think about. If we're lucky enough to have rising income and rising wealth, at what point do you say, okay, now I can take less risk? I have a feeling, there's a number in my head where I legitimately think my net worth will never be above X. Because if I get there, I'll just shut everything down. I'll be like, no more work. I'm just going to be a recluse and sit around and hang out with my friends and read (laughs) books now. 
but look, I think I, I really believe that, but there's also part of me that thinks, no, if I am lucky enough to get to that point, I'm just going to move the goalpost again. So I think it's a very natural thing to not have a sense of enough. I think if you can fight back at it a little bit, that's important, but it's the only person who I've heard of who really mastered this and might not be surprising is Daniel Kahneman, who is a psychologist who won the Nobel prize in economics for his work in behavioral finance. He went to his financial advisor. He's told the story a couple of times where he went to a financial advisor and he said, I have no desire to grow my net worth anymore. He's like, this is my nest egg. I have no desire for it to be any higher than it is right now. I just want to live on this comfortably for the rest of my days. And he says, a financial advisor looked at him and said, I can't work with you because it was so foreign to this financial advisor that someone would not want to have more money. But Kahneman didn't. He had no desire for any more money whatsoever. But he's like the only person who I've heard of who legitimately had that point. I feel like it's natural for everyone else to always want more. Do you also think it's like a safety mechanism to be like, okay, if we're being so fixed with our goalposts and we get to the goal, like if we got that wrong, we can always then choose to increase lifestyle and see just like how much we can push that. Like it doesn't work the other way around. You just run out of money that way. I think the hard part is, is that if you're like, oh, let's try to spend a little bit more money and then it feels good, then you're kind of, you get locked in. So like if you try to move the bar, it's hard to move the bar back down. Yeah. Like it's easy to push it up, but it's hard to move it's it back down. It's such a lifestyle so trap. Yeah. We so have seen huge. that happen so often. How many friends do we have that I mean, we see that happen to, especially in the New York City area? It's yeah. Just, it's yeah, so dangerous. You know, it's, it's, it's a Morgan's whole book point here. It's very, very psychological. Yeah. If there's one thing that I think we're okay with is that what worries me the most in these goalpost things are fixed expenses. If you have some variable expenses that you can think you can easily throttle them back, that's one thing. But if you have a high mortgage payment and you think, oh, it's no big deal because we could sell our house and move into one that's half the size. (laughs) No, you can't. Like You probably can't do that. One analogy for this, I remember talking to a guy who was a director of HR at a company. And he said, there's sometimes when someone is not performing in their job and we want to lay them off. And that person will say, hey, rather than laying me off, why don't you just cut my salary by 20% and then we're good. And the HR director said that never works. It never, you cannot cut someone's salary. Once they set that expectation of I get paid X, anything below that is always going to feel like they're being cheated out of it. And to him, his argument was be very careful giving people raises for this reason. You can't take it back. Once you give someone a raise, you can never take that back. Right. That's just the new level. That reminds me of something that happens to female lawyers a lot where you have a child and you go back to work and they say, well, we can negotiate you coming back four days a week and we'll cut your salary and your billables will be cut by like, what, I don't know, 20, a fifth, right, yeah. 20, 25%. But like, you're still working just as much. Now you're making less money. <laughs> you're working yeah. just as much, if not more. Smoke it never works nerves. out, right? It never works out. It's never a good deal for the person who got into it and it ends up not working out for anybody. It's, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, let's, Switch gears for a moment. So Doug has joked, you guys bust each other's chops, but Doug has joked, you're a terrible entrepreneur, when in fact, I know he really thinks you're quite good at building a business around yourself. And you're constantly speaking around the globe and you carved out this role for yourself at a VC firm doing what you love. The ability to do what you want to do on your own terms sounds pretty entrepreneurial to me, but I'd love to know what your definition of entrepreneurship is. And do you think of yourself like that? I don't think of myself of that, but what I do want more than anything that I've aspired to and I've worked hard towards is independence. I just don't want to rely on other people who are going to tell me what kind of work to do and when to do it. 
I definitely don't want anyone telling me what to write because I think writing is an art. Like this is like, I'm going to write about whatever I want to write about. I don't want anyone else's input in this. So I've always strived towards independence in my career. And I guess I didn't really think of it as entrepreneurship, but I guess it is that. That's definitely what it is. I guess it is, but I never really thought about that because of just because of the nature of what I do, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go start a business and revenue. Expense. It just, I never really thought about it like that. It was like, oh, like if someone will pay me to speak or pay me to write a book, great. That's awesome. I like that. I guess that's entrepreneur. It also happened really slowly for me where the income that I was making from speaking and writing other stuff started off really negligible and then it grew over the years. And I guess now you would consider it like a- That's even more entrepreneur. That's even a better case for entrepreneurship. I know. It was never that intentional. Like I didn't expect that it was going to get to anything significant. It was like, oh, if I could do this a little bit, that would be cool. And then it just kind of grew from there. But so yes, it has turned into an entrepreneurial endeavor. It was just wasn't intentional. And maybe that's why it's work. Like I'm just doing it because I like doing it. It's fun to get to speak and to get to write about things that I like. And if it works out and you can make money doing it, then all the better. Don't hide from this title. (laughs) Here's the other thing. And this gets back to the independence. I'm a one-man show. In this entrepreneurial endeavor, it's just me. I do everything from A to Z. There's no employees. There's no one else. And I think that's why I don't consider it entrepreneurial because it's not. I'm not managing people. I don't have a payroll to demand. And that's why it doesn't really feel like a business to me because a lot of the pressures of managing people and paying other people are things that I never have to think about. Fair enough. Well, we've talked about this before and we were joking around like titles, like calling myself the president or like Doug, the CEO of Bonafide Wealth. To your point, Morgan. I- <laughs> Doug and I also joke about that all the time. Like <laughs> Doug's going to write his next book as CEO, CEO of your men- own mind. Yeah, like CEO, CEO mentality, mentality all the time is like regardless of what position in work. He's the CEO of himself. Yeah, like if you're working in the mailroom, like you need to have a CEO mentality. But all kidding aside. Chairman of the board of directors. Exactly. Of his own life, right. But, but to your point, okay, so you don't have payroll. It's a one-man band man. And look, I employ one person and I feel like that doesn't make me any less of an entrepreneur. I pretty much consider my, look, I'm doing ops, admin, the plan delivery, business development, all of those things. And I can make a strong case that this notion of independence in what you do, again, is in fact hitting on all the areas of running the business of Morgan Housel. I guess. I still just don't think of it in those terms. And maybe a lot of it is because I do have an employed job at the collaborative fund. So I kind of have a foot in each camp. It definitely makes it so if my quote unquote business were to fail tomorrow, like it's not the end of the world. It's not like I have all my eggs in that basket, which again, that's why I have Heather. Since I don't have my eggs in that basket, I'm not paying anyone. It just never feels like that's I'm why he has me keeping a day job. In yeah, his, in it's perfect. Doug, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. Lawyer wife. Okay. God help me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for indulging me on one of my favorite conversations with you around entrepreneurship. Smart. You are my favorite entrepreneur, I think, aside from myself. Aside from himself. I'm going to retitle myself after this podcast. I'm now an entrepreneur. Perfect. Thank you. I'm an author and an entrepreneur now. You like that? Truthfully, it sounds good. It I'm sound, not yeah. See, there you go. Heather validated this. Sounds legit. Sounds Morgan Housel, author, chairman of the board of directors. There it is. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Tone it down. <laughs> one. <laughs> so one theme throughout your writing that for the things that I've at least read, has to do with demographics and how they drive change in the world. Meaning that when money, knowledge, or power shifts from one demographic to another, that the effects of that shape the world in which we live. So in thinking of 
the millennial demographic, because after all, this is a millennial focused podcast. When do you think are the most important shifts either taking place right now or with regards to this generation? So in other words, what's happening right now from a demographic point of view and shifts when it comes to millennials? Yeah. So I think if you look at what's happened in 2020, this obviously has a big generational impact, but I think you have to go back another 10 or 12 years to really understand the impact that COVID-19 is going to have on the millennial generation, because particularly older millennials started their career. This is true for, I think, all three of us around 2008, around the financial crisis, the great recession. We're all the same age. yeah. Right. So when you start your career in that zone, you're looking for your first job in the teeth of a serious recession. But it was easy in 2008 to say, look, this is a once in a century event. This is really bad, but this is not the kind of thing that happens all the time. We just got unlucky for this once in a century event. That was what most people said about 2008. And then we kind of had this tepid recovery. And now, boom, we're back into a recession that by a lot of metrics is way worse than anything that happened in 2008. I think once you put those two together, that now you're going to have a generation of millennials who says, this is how the world works. Every 10 years, the world falls to pieces. 2008 was not a one-off event. That was just the first event that I saw of a pattern of how the world works. I think the only other analogy to this was the generation that suffered through the Great Depression. And then as soon as that was over, they got thrust into World War II. That generation, there's a lot of research on this, that generation for the rest of their life did not want to take a lot of risk. And they always had this idea that the world falls apart once a decade, because for them, it did. That was all they ever knew. It's different, I think, for baby boomers that had and experienced the prosperity of the late 80s and 1990s and early 2000s and saw that. It's not that they haven't experienced other setbacks. They had the inflation of the 1970s and 80s. They had the dot-com bust. They also went through the recession of 2008. But for older millennials, it's all they've ever known. All they've ever known is collapse and then tepid recovery and then collapse again. And I think that's going to stick with them for the rest of their lives, for the whole generation in a way that did for the baby boomers' parents as well. I think each generation has their own idea of how the world works. And I think the combination of 2008 and 2020 has really been foundational to millennials in terms of setting the expectations of how the economy works that will stick with them for the rest of their lives. Do you think it's fair to say that, this is a big ask here, and do you think it's fair to say that millennials have had it more challenging relative to baby boomers? I mean, it's tough to make this comparison to my grandpa who fought frontline World War II. It's like, geez, man, he got shot at from Nazis. But this is not to poke fun or do anything from millennial to boomer finger This isn't pointing. part of our anti-boomer rhetoric. Yeah, <laughs> this isn't that. It's just, is there a case to be made with the back-to-back recession into pandemic, especially for older millennials, that this is far more challenging or is it just different? Just another cycle. Yeah, it's, it's, right. it's, it's just different and it's unique to us. I think there's two things. One is that for baby boomers who are coming into their age in the 70s and 80s, the combination of Vietnam and then right after that, the inflation of the late 70s and early 80s, that sucked. That was a really nasty period, particularly to be coming into the jobs market. So I think it's easy for us to say, look how bad millennials have had it, housing crash, whatnot. But it was pretty rotten for the baby boomers at the same point in their lives as well. I think if there is a thing that millennials have it worse at, it's just in terms of the expectations. This gets back to, again, when we think of the golden age in the 1950s, even though we were much better off. I think it's easy to view the job market for millennials as much harder today because our expectations are much greater. Does that come from like over-education too? And the narrative around that? That's a lot of it. There is, again, like a nostalgia of like manufacturing jobs 
that in the 1960s and 70s, you just went down to the Ford plant and you got a great job. But a lot of those jobs were not that great. If you're looking at the wages that they were making adjusted for inflation, it wasn't that great. But in terms of the expectations that they had, that was a great job. Like in their minds, it was like, oh, this is the definition of a good job. Whereas I think today when the expectations are, no, you're going to go to college, you're going to get a good corporate job where you're going to make six figures and you're going to be able to retirement, you're going to get stock options. If that's your expectation, then it is harder today. But back then it just wasn't in people's expectations. The expectation was not that you were going to go to college and get a corporate job. It was that you're going to work in a factory and make the equivalent adjusted for inflation of like 15 to 20 bucks an hour and live in your 900 square foot house. And for your annual vacation, you're going to take your kids camping. It's just a totally different set of expectations in a way that made it, it seems like to me, it was probably less pressure. Yeah, it's well, doable. And pressure is a big part of like life happiness. Right. It was easier to check the boxes, I think. Well, that was enough. As that you was say, enough. that was enough. That was enough. Whereas today, the expectations for our demographic is just a lot higher today than it was back then. Yeah. For a lot of people, you were in a foxhole in the Ardeen. And if you were back in the United States, you were putting rivets in planes. So yeah, 900 square foot house is pretty dreamy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so- Sticking with demographics here, which shifts do you think are the ones to pay the most attention to over the next 10 years? I think if you're looking at 10 years, it's pretty short. But for demographics, let's look at 30 or 50 years. I'll let you pick a time period here if it means like this is the one I'm paying the most attention to. Let's look at between now and 2050, because these are the ones that I know some of the numbers in. China's working age population between now and 2050 is going to decline by 200 million people, which even as a percentage of their population is enormous. It's very similar in percentage terms. If you look at Japan, Japan. South Korea, most of Europe, their working age population, the population of people aged 16 to 64 is declining. And not just a little bit, it's declining by a lot. It is almost impossible to grow your economy when you have a declining working age population. When there are fewer workers this year when they were last year, very difficult to grow anything like that. The United States is the growth in our working age population will not be as robust as it was over the last 50 years, but it's still going to grow between now and 2050. Even if you make a really conservative estimate for what different kinds of foreign immigration is going to be, it's still very likely going to grow. Like we have pretty good demographics relative to other parts of the world. That I think is probably the variable that we can put a lot of confidence in that's going to dictate what countries are going to do well between now and 2050. It's very difficult to make any rational argument that China's economy is going to grow at any substantial rate over the next 40 years just because of demographics. There's only two ways to grow your economy. You can have more people or you can make those people more productive. That's what all economic growth is. It's one of those two things. If you take demographics out of that equation, you're taking half the equation out of what economic growth is. So even if China is very productive and they increase the productivity of their people by a lot, the headwind that they have just from demographics to grow their economy at all is severe. This has been Japan's case over the last 30 years, where their economic growth has been roughly zero. It's because their demographics are awful. So if you're looking at just that variable, then the United States in the developed world probably has the biggest advantage over any other large nation over the next 20 or 30 years. Well, thank you. That was very informative, Morgan. Look, like with forecasting, most of the stuff we can't put that much confidence in. If we're trying to forecast like what's going to be the best technology of the 20 years, the track record of that stuff is awful. But demographics is one of the things that you can put a lot of confidence in. It's not an exact science, but you can put a lot of confidence in the idea that it would be virtually impossible for China's population to not decline over the next 30 years. Even if a baby boom started tomorrow, 
just it's kind of already set in stone that's going to decline. So I think it's just it's the one variable that we can put a lot of confidence in in forecasting, which is what makes it special. So interesting. Listen, that's why I brought it out here specifically with demographics, because anytime there's a post by you where it's focusing on that and those shifts, those are the ones, it's all very interesting writing, but those are the ones that capture my attention because I'm okay, these are the big ideas. This has really been awesome. This has been such a great conversation. And this has been fun. We know a few things that have kept you awake at night, such as like Amazon's latent fulfillment of a very super popular book that you wrote. And just yes. yeah. <laughs> and just like us, we know you have two kids, five and under. So we're going to ask you this question anyways, because we ask all our guests at the end. What have you lost sleep over lately? There's two things that I've been thinking a lot about lately. One is that the number of small and medium-sized businesses in the United States that will not survive COVID-19 is huge. It's probably Absolutely. underappreciated what it's going to be. And that is when you get permanent damage for what's happened. Even if we now we have a vaccine that's going to start being rolled out hopefully next week. But if you have a lot of these businesses that are not going to make it, that even when people are willing to go back out shopping, go back in, it's not going to be the same world that it's been. Particularly if you're looking at like restaurants in New York and San Francisco, it's going to be a different world in the coming years than it was than the world that you last saw in 2019 before this all happened. And I think once you get permanent damage from something like this, that's when just like the Great Recession, it can take a decade or more to recover from. It's not going to be any sort of quick snapback. And it's just the human toll that is awful and it's tragic. And there's just millions of lives ruined for people who feel like they had everything taken away from them and feel like their sense of dignity and their place in the world, their ability to be valuable to society has been taken away. And that when you measure that story in tens of millions of people, it's heartbreaking. That's a different country than we had a year ago. And I think the odds that we're heading towards that are really high. That's one thing. I also worry about at the personal level, this is obviously like way lower stakes than anything I just said, but I worry about, will I be able to write other stuff in the future that's going to live up to the expectations that I've set from this book? I think that's something I think a lot about. I'm going to start writing book number two early next year. And I already feel like, is it going to be good enough? Is it going to be as good as book number one was? I think just setting those expectations is something. The sophomore album, right. That I worry about, yeah. Well, if you're the Kanye West of financial writing, you're going to hit it out of the park. You won't have any trouble. So you never know with Kanye. I don't know if that was a compliment or not. It was. <laughs> that might not be if we're talking about Kanye. I don't know. I thought, I thought his sophomore album was. It was great. Untoppable, so. It was a despite having a different opinion. Anyways. Morgan, we cannot thank you enough for joining us. Before we go, please let our listeners know where to find you, your blog, and pick up a copy of the book, The Psychology of Money. So most of what I do, as Doug will know, is I spend most of my time on Twitter. My handle is Morgan Housel, my first and last name. Also, my blog at The Collaborative Fund is just collaborativefund.com slash blog. Awesome. Well, again, friend, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Morgan. This has been fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you for staying up with us and checking out We Should Be Sleeping. Connect with us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, and learn more at weshouldbesleeping.com. We'll see you next time on We Should Be Sleeping. <laughs> <laughs>